you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. And as you're turning there, um, I bring you greetings from Wayside Presbyterian Church, which is uh, on Signal Mountain, Tennessee, just north of Chattanooga. And my wife Anna and I are so thankful to be here with you. Your pastor has been a very dear friend to me now for well over 11, 12 years, and I'm grateful to see this work. I, I knew John when he was in Douglasville, Georgia, and coming here to plant a church, and so it's very exciting for my family to get to be here and see the fruit of his labors and God's blessing on this work and to meet many of you and to see old friends who, some of whom we didn't even know were going to be here. So it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, As we are looking together at Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 16 this morning, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me. And um, before we do look at God's word together, I want to invite you to pray with me for God's blessing on his word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do thank you that you are the God who has created all things out of nothing by the word of your power and that you have created it um, in our souls. You have created new life. By the word of your power, you are the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, and you have shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And Father in heaven, we pray that you would do a great work among us this morning as your word is preached. We pray that you would uh, send out not only your word, but the power of the gospel, that you would make us to know Jesus Christ formed in us by faith that you would remove distractions, that you would give us attentiveness, and that you would send forth your word in triumph. Lord Jesus, we pray that this morning we would be able to say that we truly have heard the voice of the Son of God and that we live. We pray that you would draw near to us and that you would strengthen this portion of our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1. And they are right in the middle of this book as the Apostle Paul is transitioning to the applicatory section of this great letter. He now writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, this morning we confess together what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. I grew up in churches in which we uh, confess the great early Christian creeds of the church, and the Apostles' Creed was one of those creeds that we said most regularly. And I remember as a child several things confusing me. Uh, about the Apostles' Creed, and one of those things uh, was what, what do we mean when we say that um, he's going to judge the quick and the dead? I, I, I thought as a little boy he was talking about people that were fast. Um, I've, that's been straightened out for me. But, but one of the other things that uh, bothered me as a boy was that I wasn't quite sure what we meant when we said, I believe in the communion of the saints. Uh, it almost seemed like a tack-on. To me, I I thought as a child the really important things are uh, believing in the one God who created all things, in Jesus Christ who came and who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and I knew that was the central thing, and I knew that was the really important thing, but um, toward the end of the creed, we, we say those other things that I valued as a child. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I understood the significance of that, but what what do we mean when we confess, I believe, in the communion of the saints. Um, I sometimes wonder if maybe our lack of deep meditation on what we mean by that is due to a sort of individualistic view of salvation. I think we all have a tendency to rightly appropriate the gospel to ourselves and rightly feel and know our need for Jesus Christ and rightly know that I need the blood of the Savior, and I need redemption through Jesus Christ. And yet, we sometimes fail to realize that Jesus is doing so much more than just redeeming me as an individual. Now, the Apostle Paul in this great letter has given us the most magnificent view of what Jesus does in the first chapter. He's told us that Jesus is the one in whom God the Father gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So that the Christ who is now ascended into heaven itself is the source of every spiritual blessing. And God the Father, by grace, has bestowed all of those blessings out on us. He's chosen us in Christ. He He is sanctifying us in Christ. He's adopted us in Christ. He has justified us in Christ. And he is going to give us the everlasting inheritance. And yet, in between those statements of spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and the heavenly places in chapter 1, there's a statement that Jesus Christ might gather together in one all things in heaven and on earth. Um, He is doing so much more than just redeeming me as an individual and you as an individual. And as the Apostle goes on to enumerate all the blessings that we have undergone through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and as he talks about the ascended Christ and his benefits, 
And he comes now to this applicatory section. It's very interesting. The first thing that he does, after setting out all the doctrine, all the, the facts of Christianity, all the truth, after laying that most, it, most significant foundation for us, he begins to apply those things. And the first thing he begins to apply the gospel to is the life of the church on the whole. Now, it's interesting if you read through Ephesians uh, in one sitting, you, you might notice something. There are bookends to this letter. Uh, there in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And in chapter 6, he says, We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, with forces of darkness in the heavenly places. We've been blessed in Christ in the heavenly places. We wrestle with forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And right in the middle of the book, bookend between those two statements, is where that warfare takes place. And it first of all takes place in the church. Paul will say, where the battle is fought and where the blessings of God are realized as we are engaged in enemy-occupied territory is that the life of the Christian will be fought and won and lived in the church, in the home, and in the workplace in that spiritual battle in the heavenly places while here on earth. Now that gives us a little bit of a background to what Paul is about to say here in chapter 4. And as we look at uh, verses 1 through 16, we're going to see there are four things that Paul is going to tell us about the union and the communion that believers have in the church and four things that are vital to the maintenance and preservation and fostering and goal reaching of the believer's life in the church. There are four things. I could put it this way. If Christ Church Presbyterian wants to know what are the most important things for the life of the church in this world, the Apostle Paul is going to tell you exactly what they are here in these 16 verses. He's going to tell, you, tell us they are unity, diversity, stability, and maturity. Unity, diversity, stability, and maturity. Now notice this. Paul's in prison in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I, I find it interesting that we often gloss over a passage like this. We, um, we might just read that hastily. We want to get to the more significant doctrinal teachings. And yet, here the Apostle Paul is shackled in chains for the gospel, but his heart is not chained. His heart is burdened for the church. And everything that Paul is about to write in this section, you might say, is the most important thing on the heart of an imprisoned apostle for the establishment and health of a fledgling church. Remember, this is a church that Paul had planted. Paul had spent three years there. He had set up a seminary there, the school of Tyrannus. He had trained elders there. He had wept with those elders when he left them to go to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to lay his life down. And this was a church that was near and dear to the Apostle Paul, and yet it was, it was a fledgling church. It was a young church. It had needs, and Paul recognizes those needs. Even while he's in prison, he's thinking about what do these people need to hear more than anything else? What are the weightiest things I can tell them about their life together as a church? And the first thing he says is that 
They are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Um, I have pastored two churches now, and in my time in pastoral ministry, I have seen dozens of churches ripped apart through schism, division, pride, arrogance, self-will, well-meaning, intimations, assertions, desires. Well, if we were just doing this, well, if we just had this, well, if the leadership just understood this, and, and then people find confidants and they start talking to them and they start to say, well, maybe there's others in the congregation that feel like I feel. And if we just could get the leadership and others in the church to, understood what we, to understand what we understand, then, then maybe we could really see this church become what we think it should become. And, and little by little, the, the division spread and the bitterness spreads, and it really only takes one to start that. And the apostle is going into this section, calling on this church to live together in unity and love and communion, the unity that Christ has purchased for them. That's where the unity has come from and that the spirit has given them. And the first thing he says is that we are to walk in a worthy manner of the calling to which we've been called with all lowliness and gentleness, humility, bearing with one another in love. And then here it is. Notice this eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul is not saying Here's how you get a unified church. Paul is actually leading with the assumption that the church is already unified because of who Jesus is and what he's done at the cross. Our union comes from the one crucified redeemer nailed to the tree. Our union comes from the one gospel. Our union comes from the truth of God's word. Our union comes from the true God. And notice that Paul actually gives seven Seven statements about oneness. Notice this in verse 4. He says there is one body, one spirit, one calling, one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in you all. You see, the oneness is rooted in who the living and true God is and who Jesus Christ is and who the Spirit is, and in all that he's purchased for us, and in all that he is for us in dwelling us, so that when we come to understand that, our part is to maintain, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, I sometimes think if this is so simple, it is so very simple, If every Christian got this, what would the church look like to the watching world? If every professing believer understood this and put this into practice in our daily interactions, the way we think about one another, when we think about each other, do we think about each other as blood-bought people belonging to Jesus? Um... When we think about one another, do we think if, if he or she were not in heaven, heaven would not be heaven? 
one famous theologian said, if one elect was missing from heaven, it, it wouldn't be glory. Because that's what God has purposed, to gather together in one all of his people in Christ, all those for whom Jesus has shed his blood. And if the church really got that, what would it look like to the watching world? Sinclair Ferguson, reflecting on John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, which is in many respects a, a complement to this chapter where Jesus prays to the Father that we would be one as he is one with the Father and that we may together see his glory and that we may be with him where he is and that that, that oneness that we have together would be a witness to the world. And Jesus says, by this, to the disciples in the upper room, all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And St. Clair Ferguson says the greatest evangelistic tool in the belt of Christians in the 21st century is that we would learn to live together as a loving, truth-filled community of believers the way the Apostle Paul is here envisioning this. What would the world think? What would the church think if they saw that? What would the world think if they saw that at Christ Church Presbyterian? And so as Paul is calling them to understand the union and the communion that they have with one another in the spirit, in the one body, through their baptism, in their one God and Father of all, he is calling them to understand that this is the most important thing the church can pursue throughout the time of our sojourning here. Now, that's not to say that the church is not to be supremely interested in sound doctrine. The apostle's going to come to that. That's part and parcel of maintaining the unity of the spirit and the one faith and the one Lord and the one baptism. But oh, that the Lord would press that on our hearts that in whatever else we think about the church and the communion of the saints, we would think about the union that we have with one another in Jesus Christ in the spirit. The sweet, the mystic sweet communion as the hymn writer says, with God the three in one, and those whose rest is one. That mystical, sweet union and communion. But notice the apostle now moves from the call to preserve Christian unity on to the call to understand ministerial diversity. Now, in our day, you don't have to go online very much to read all the articles and blog posts and uh, Twitter threads and rants about diversity. How are we supposed to understand diversity in our country? How are we supposed to understand and approach diversity in our churches? How are we to understand how we are to gain unity among all the diversity, the cultural diversity, the many backgrounds, the many distinctions, the many preferences, the many ideologies? And here the Apostle Paul shifts gears and moves from the call to unity to a call to recognize diversity, and yet it's not quite what maybe we would think. Notice this. He says in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. And then notice this, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, what Paul begins to say here in verse 7 is that 
A unity in the church is fostered and preserved by the diversity of gifts of its members working together to build up every part. Paul is going to get there. And, and then he sort of takes a hiatus from that. He begins to say, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And so it's as if Paul wants to go in on the subject of the various gifts in the members of the church. He does that, remember, in Romans 12. He does it also in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And he'll enumerate those catalogs of spiritual gifts that different believers have. And he'll encourage the body to work together in every part, doing its share and every member being necessary. And then he sort of catches himself and he begins to talk about the source of the church's diverse gifts. And he goes right back to Jesus Christ. Now, this is marvelous because we tend, when we talk about the gifts that God has given members of the church, to talk about them as the gifts of the Spirit, rightly so. And sometimes we have debates over whether they are the extraordinary gifts or the ordinary gifts, whether they are supernatural or, or more in keeping with our personalities and, and books, legions of books have been written. And if you were in the church in the 1980s and 90s, it was a huge thing to talk about spiritual gifts and then everybody stopped. And here, the Apostle Paul suddenly says that they are Christ's gifts. Remember, he's the head of the church. And so whatever diversity there is in the body of which you are a partaker and participant, whatever gifts you have with which you are to serve one another in love and build each other up, those gifts come directly from Jesus Christ. And Paul does something very interesting, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in verse 8, he will actually quote Psalm 68, a verse out of Psalm 68, and he changes the verse a little bit. If you went back to Psalm 68, the verse would say something like this. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He received gifts from men. And here, Paul says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. And the picture is of a conquering king coming back from spoiling the spoils of the enemy and taking his people from the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light and the king proceeding up to his royal throne with a long procession of the spoils of war as the trophies. And the picture of Psalm 68 is him taking the redeemed up with him. Those that he has shed his blood for. He is marching to Zion. He is going up to the throne of God. He is going into the temple. And behind him is a multitude too great to number out of every tongue and tribe and people and nation following the lamb wherever he goes. And the picture here is that he has taken from that multitude and he has given back to his church men to serve in a variety of capacities as ministers in the church. Out of that great multitude of the redeemed, he has said, I'm going to give my church this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, to be an apostle, 
or a prophet or an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher. You know, pastoral ministry is hard, and your pastor did not ask me to say this, but I'll say it for him. Um, Pastoral ministry is the most rewarding call in the world and the most challenging call in the world because a true minister of the gospel knows that Christ has given him as a gift to the church and yet recognizes that very often he is not viewed as the gift that Christ has given him to be. Uh, Your pastor and I have a mutual friend who's the president of a seminary, and he said to me once, um, you know, after 10 years in ministry, I I felt like I was just a used piece of furniture over in the side of the house that, you know, the people that own the house are talking constantly about replacing. Um, That's the reality of pastoral ministry. Here are the apostles saying, listen, here is what Christ has done. For the communion of the saints, he has given gifts of faithful ministers, and that is a great gift. It is a gift that should never be looked down on or taken for granted. It is one of the greatest gifts in glory, in glory. Christians will know what great gifts evangelists and pastors and teachers were to the church. And the union and the communion that we have with one another is in some way necessarily preserved by those gifts that Christ has given to his church. They're necessary. This is why we don't support house church movements as understandable as they may seem because we believe that Jesus has built into his church the very need for gospel ministers who will be faithful in shepherding the flock and in helping. Notice, notice their roles here as Paul now develops this theme of a diversity of ministerial gifts. Notice verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's, that's gospel ministry summed up in the life of the church in total. The work of a minister is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. That's it. He's not to be a community organizer. He's not to be a great developer. I'll tell you, I am often shocked when I hear people talk about their ministers and what they love about their ministers, and none of these things are in the list of the things they love about their minister. This is it. Jesus has given gifts to the church so that they would equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. There's a third thing that the apostle tells us here beyond Christian unity and ministerial diversity that is necessary for the life of the communion of the saints, and that is doctrinal stability. Now, this, you might say, goes hand in hand with what Paul has just said in verse 12, and you would be right to to say that, and yet there is a sense where the apostle is concerned about the fragility of the life of the church. You know, I have a friend in ministry who said, uh, for many decades, I always feel like I'm one sermon away from bringing the whole thing down. And I've said that at conferences, and I've had people come up to me and say to me, you know, that's a very depressing thought. I mean, we should not think of the church that way. The church is very fragile. If the church wasn't as fragile as it is, the apostle wouldn't have to write what he wrote here. You see, he's in prison, and he's concerned about the threats 
to the life of this church and every church. And notice one of the threats he says in verse 14. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You see, the apostle is concerned about instability in the life of the church with regard to doctrine. You know, I'm always a little taken back when I hear people say things like, yeah, 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 I mean, we need sound doctrine, but that's sort of flippant, nonchalant dismissal of the importance. Um, At the end of the day, we're going to get to heaven because of sound doctrine that brings us to the foot of the cross and keeps us rooted in the Savior. That's what gets us to heaven. That's, that's the rudder. The apostle actually is envisioning them almost like a rudderless ship tossed around on the waves. And he's saying, here's the rudder. It's the sound doctrine of God's word keeping us steadfastly moving to glory. Um, this is why we should love taking advantage. I was noticing in your church uh, bulletin, the many small groups that you have. Your pastor didn't ask me to promote these, by the way, but he's working through John Owen. You should, you should go to his John Owen book study if you can. You should go to Bible studies and small groups. You should be at prayer meetings. You should be under the ministry of the word as often as you can, morning and evening. That's, what, that's what's going to get us to glory. It's going to keep us centered on the straight and narrow not tossed around. Notice Paul's concern here is that they be no longer children. Um, I really enjoyed this morning talking to a number of individuals. I planted a church ten and a half years ago on the coast of Georgia, and um, being here reminds me a lot, a lot of the work that we uh, undertook for ten years. And... Um, I used to say to people, you know, we often talk about church planting. This is a church plant. And if you tell unbelievers that, they're like, a what? But, but I actually think a better term would be a church birthing. Because when you, when you start a new work, it is like an infant. And the pastor is there day and night, nurturing, caring for this child, making sure this child is growing and is healthy. And, and then as the years progress, there's sort of an analogy. You start to see it as the years pass and the, the, the church goes on five years or 10 years, you start to see that it's very much like a child growing. And the apostle is, is seeing that illustration here. He's seeing the need for believers, newer believers, younger believers, or for newer churches to be growing up in the truth of the gospel to be nourished on sound doctrine, as the writer of Hebrews says. Not not just on the milk, but on the meat of the word. Um, Growing spiritually and healthy. And then there's a fourth thing here, and I want us to focus on this here toward the end of our time together, and that is the apostle is zealous for this church to attain to spiritual maturity. You know, One of the frustrating things about the Apostle Paul is that he's sort of a type A, alpha male, and and when you read the Apostle Paul, you get the sense that it's never enough. And that's good. The Apostle Paul never says in any of his letters, you're doing great. 
just stay where you are. He never says that. He never in any of his letters says, stay right where you're at. The Apostle Paul knows that if there's anything that we need in the communion of the saints, it is that together we would be growing up into full spiritual maturity and that we're never there in this life. We're never there. Notice what he says. Notice in verse 13, he says that the diverse gifts in the church are being used until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the goal for the members of the church? It is that you and I would look more and more like Jesus. That's the goal, Christ-likeness. Now, sometimes people talk about holiness or sanctification, and they do so by delineating a litany of external things, measurements, and tests. And what we so rarely hear is the way the Bible often talks about holiness, almost always, is that it is conformity to the image of Jesus. So that when I look at Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture, I should never, ever come to the point where I say, yep, that's what I look like. (laughs) And if you ever get to a point where you look at the Lord Jesus and you think, yeah, I I am so much like Christ, you have completely, completely embraced some kind of weird spiritual delusion and have tricked yourself and deceived yourself because at the end of the day, all of us are so far from looking like the Lord Jesus as we ought. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism, after their exposition of the Ten Commandments, they ask the question, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, since no one can keep the commandments in this life, uh, or since, since we've been redeemed to keep the commandments, can anyone keep the commandments perfectly? And they say, no. Uh, all men are so far from keeping the commandments that they do make but the godliest do make but the least advancement in this life compared to what God requires and demands. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ is the goal and all the members are working together to help one another become more like Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, here's here's what I believe in the communion of the saints means. I believe that it's my responsibility, and I believe that it's your responsibility, that we help one another become more like Jesus Christ. Through prayer, love, kindness, gentleness, humility, all the things Paul said out at the beginning laboring to preserve the union that we already have in the spirit and that as we lower ourselves to support one another the body Paul says notice he says toward the end now in verse 15 rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ now I know that you know this, but I'm going to tell you this this morning. I think the most difficult 
the most challenging aspect of Christian living is learning to speak the truth in love. There are plenty of people that think that they speak in love while they're not speaking truth. And there are plenty of people who believe they are speaking the truth in love when they're just speaking it harshly and judgmentally. And so the Lord wants us to couple those things in our relationships, to be truth-speaking people, to be loving in all the truth that we speak, in caring for one another, in exhorting one another, in challenging one another, in praying for one another, in encouraging one another, in the litany of ways that we need to speak to one another, respective to whatever is going on in our life at the time. And then notice this as he closes verse 16. He says, From Christ the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Um, A couple years ago, I know I'm getting older because a couple years ago I went hiking with my wife and I came down too hard on my foot and it hurt for like half a year. And I was like, you, when you're young, you heal. And then when you get older, you don't. You're like, what happened to healing? And, uh, and I, I know I looked ridiculous because I was pretty much limping everywhere for half a year. My body was not functioning right, and it was affecting the way I could or could not do things. And the apostle saying, when we don't commit ourselves to this, every one of us, when we don't commit ourselves to this, the body will not function properly. It will not work the way it's supposed to work, and it will not grow the way it's supposed to grow. Now, here's the beautiful thing. It's not all on your shoulders. Christ is the head. It's Jesus' body. We are savingly united to him. Paul is telling us not become something that you're not. He's saying become what you already are and become what you are in a more full way. And it's not dependent on any one person. It's not dependent on your pastor in total to make sure that all the needs of this church are met with perfectly. It's dependent on every member building itself up in love, praying with and for one another, caring for one another, pouring our lives out to see good for one another. I'm going to leave you with this thought this morning. Um, as Christ Church Presbyterian continues pressing on to be a faithful witness throughout Mount Pleasant and Charleston, I would challenge you to constantly reassess if this is what you all are desiring to be. What Paul sets out in Ephesians 4 is it's, it's the most important thing the church could, could attain to. And yet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you of this this morning. It's also the enemy-occupied territory where principalities and powers are going to use everything they can to disrupt it. And I would be grieved if I heard one day that having told you that, I hear that this church fell apart in any kind of schism or division. It would grieve me to hear that. And so I would call you guys this morning to commit to being a people who are fully devoted to pursuing what God has called us to be living 
in the union and the communion that we have in Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have breathed out these words, how necessary they are to us. Lord, we acknowledge that we would not attain to these things if we were left to our own. We would not devise these things on our own. We acknowledge and confess this morning that we are often selfish and proud and slow to seek to build others up. Our God, would you change us? We pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray that you would conform us to his image. We pray that your blessing would rest on this congregation. We pray that you would not only give them a deep love for one another as members of the same body, but that you would increase their love for you and their joy in pouring their lives out for one another to see uh, your body advance and grow. And we pray, our God, that you would do this both for the conversion of men and women looking on and for your own glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.